Hey, greetings. You are listening to Breakfast Bites, and I am Felicia King. On today's show, I'm going to discuss a couple interesting networking things that actually really happened. And I like to try to take these sorts of real world examples of things that happen uh, that I encounter, whether they be in interactions with people or conversations that uh, can be utilized to educate the greater world community and to eradicate misunderstandings of things as much as possible. So that is going to be the topic of today's show, uh, specifically around eradicating misunderstandings and misperceptions about things having to do with TCPIP networking or just networking in general. So scenario one is a topic of an organization who has internal IT and a technician at the company was trying to set up a voice over IP phone service that was delivered by uh, another third party vendor who did not have any technical ability to advise them as to what was required at the network layer in order to make their phones work. Uh, No, they never, that other service provider had never encountered this before because every network they've apparently ever tried to run this on in the past is rather insecure. And uh, so they just don't really know how the thing works. And that is actually pretty typical. That's why it's really important that you do really solid vendor vetting from a technical perspective and find out what their vetting process is. In many cases, I encounter situations where the decision to utilize a particular product was not made in the engineering department and the CISO didn't have input into it. No, instead, it was the marketing department who made some decision and they're like, well, you know, we're going to sell Ring Central because we get a higher margin on Ring Central than if we did on, you know, another product. And that I have to say is one of my pretty significant pet peeves in the IT service provider industry. I don't make decisions based upon that. The products that we recommend are the products that we use. And uh, if I don't use it, I'm not going to recommend it. And then whatever we recommend, we make it our business to know everything uh, there is to know about that thing. And so, of course, that really translates to us being able to provide better service to our clients. So I feel it's a bit of an ethical responsibility. So nonetheless, you know, we as the the escalation support were contacted about this phone, desk phones didn't work. So question number one is always, does that desk phone have its own individual network cable or is somebody trying to dongle a PC off the back of it? Anytime you're trying to dongle PCs off the back of desk phones, you're just asking for trouble. Just because you can technically do something doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can go jump off of a bridge and commit suicide doesn't really make it a good idea. So you got to think about it that way. Just I'm not I don't want to spend, you know, 52 minutes explaining why they should be on separate cables. That's not really that much up for debate. There's a lot of IT people that seem to get that facet. They seem to understand that. So moving on from there. You then have to understand that different types of assets have different security profiles. Okay, this seems to make logical sense. It's the execution of it that seems to fail quite frequently. 
Like a wireless access point is not the same type of a device as a PC or a desk phone or an IP speaker or a door controller or a surveillance camera or an HVAC system or an electrical metering system or, you know, I could go on, right? Certainly isn't the same type of asset as your servers or the out-of-band management for servers or the switches themselves and the switch management control plane. Again, I'm going on and on, but you're getting an idea here that each one of these devices has actually a unique and needs to be customized for those devices, a unique security zone profile. So if they have a unique security zone profile, what does that mean? Well, they, you might need to give them different DNS servers. It means you may have to do different things from a DHCP perspective. Um, in some case, like a phone VLAN, you might even utilize a TFTP a DHCP server option that you're uh, providing to the desk phones. And that kind of a, a TFTP option would be inappropriate for other types of devices. <clears throat> Uh, so if you don't have all of these assets on different subnets that are able to be controlled in unique security zone profiles, then you can't tailor the security zone profile for those assets, right? So you have to separate them out. Well, one of the easiest ways to separate them out is physical cables and the use of VLANs. Now, I talked recently to somebody who said to me, I don't like VLANs. I'd rather set up a network with physical segmentation. I think that that is a, an approach that maybe somebody could have gotten away with about 20 years ago. I don't see that as functional or workable anymore. And the reason is, and I, so I, I really feel it's an, it's an incredibly antiquated viewpoint. And it, it comes down to the fact that you could look at even a small office of 15 people with one server. You know, I'm talking like a Hyper-V host with a number of virtual machines running on it. So you have inherently tier zero assets there. You have tier one assets. You have tier two assets. You might have two or three different types of tier two assets. Your printers are on their own VLAN. They better be because they have their own unique security zone profile. You may have a storage VLAN because you have a NAS and that NAS uh, is required by your cybersecurity insurance to have totally separatized micro-segmented protections in place. You may have deprecated apps that you have to run in your environment and those can't be on the same VLAN with your standard PCs. You may have an electrical metering system. Uh, what about Chromebooks? What about surveillance cameras? What about your desk phones? What about wireless access points? The switches themselves. Even if you don't even have any servers at all on your premise, you're still gonna have at least two switch VLANs. You know you're gonna have wireless access points. Well, now we're talking about three VLANs right there at a minimum. You know, so if, you, your approach is that you're going to do all of this stuff with physically separated equipment with physically separated wires because somehow you think you're making your life less complicated by not using VLANs, then you know you can't actually have the number of VLANs that you need. And so this comes to my mind about how easy it is for us 
to do hardcore network layer security. Because adding another VLAN and setting up uh, an additional set of customized security zones, you know, profile for that VLAN, the ACLs that go around it and all of the little features and functionality that are put in place to support the assets on that VLAN, when you have the appropriate networking equipment in place and you have the appropriate technical skill set to manage and design those things, it's no big deal. It's really a big nothing burger. It's just you go configure it and bingo, bingo, you're, you know, you're, you're up and running. And your additional run cost for having additional VLANs is actually, you know, this is me speaking with almost 30 years of experience here, significantly lower than if I had to mess around with my physical switch is the boundary for that subnet, you know, or, oh, I've got to uh, have physically connected different, I've got to somehow physically connect it into the router and then wait, I can't transmit those VLANs through the switch. So now I'm burning up an interface on my core router for one VLAN. Well, that's also really limiting in what you can do. I mean, networks that we put out are typically 20 to 40 VLANs or more. I mean, just a basic, basic, smaller business class environment, uh, at least 15 VLANs is typical. Absolutely just typical. And how do you meet all the cybersecurity requirements that are talking about you have to have segmentation for the assets? How are you protecting the domain controllers? How are you protecting tier zero assets? You know, how are you, uh, what are you doing for the wireless, you know, HVAC controller that you have to have, or, you know, the surveillance cameras, you know, I mean, just all of these things have, you, you either say, you know what, I'm just not going to have network security, or if you're actually going to have network security, then, you know, you have to have the ability to have this level of flexibility. So if I go back to this example I was talking about before with the desk phones and stuff. So, you know, they, they couldn't basically were having problems getting these desk phones to work because the network had never been set up in order to support those things. So what we uh, ended up doing is saying, hey, look, you know, you really need to actually have a functional piece of switching equipment in there that can handle um, the type of configuration that's required to support this and frankly, everything else that you should have been doing for the last 16 years that you haven't been doing. And so, you know, so I say that because it's nothing exotic. It's like totally standard operating procedure. So, you know, new switch comes, get it in there and uh, we communicate to them, you know, here are the switch ports that are for your printers. Here's the ones for the PCs. Here's the ones for the desk phones. Then we get a contact from the uh, technician who says, hey, uh, two of the three phones are not working. Well, with the use of a high quality switch, it becomes pretty straightforward to quickly and remotely identify where those phones were plugged in when those phones were not working. So the level of visibility that you have into what's going on in the network when you have the right equipment with the right configuration you know, the level of visibility is, is phenomenal. I have seen plenty of IT service providers 
have to pay for very expensive add-ons like Ovic, which is like $50 per device per month. <laughs> That's expensive. Wowzers. And um, they have to have that they have to have that subscription so that they can have network layer visibility because they haven't standardized and said, hey, we're going to standardize on this type of switching equipment. And inherently, this type of switching equipment just has built in that kind of visibility that we need. And then we're going to do really good documentation and we're going to you know, utilize a good common sense, high quality network design here. And uh, instead of, uh, you know, star configuration, dongling switches off of switches off of switches, you know, that's just like, oh, um, you know, and that's actually dangerous too. I saw that recently at another job site. I went out and looked at it and uh, somebody had basically gone into the store and gotten a Netgear switch and then uh, plugged it into a wall outlet and you know I about flipped a biscuit when I was there I'm like so you do realize that by you doing this you can back channel a an electrical surge that comes through this you know little $50 switch you can back channel a power surge through that into the core switch which would probably have like an adverse impact of about $30,000 a day why would you do that? Well, people do that when they don't have information security policies in place. There's ramifications to situations when end users or you know business leaders try to just solve these problems on their own. Like, oh, I'll just go over to Best Buy and I'll just get the thing. Well, they don't know what they don't know. You know, it's like, you know, don't hire me to go and fix your freight line or truck engine either. I mean, that's not my speciality. So, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you can't go to the store and buy something. Uh, I'm saying you really shouldn't be going to the store and buying something unless you've gotten approval from your CISO for that. Because otherwise you could just be lighting money on fire or creating a bigger problem. You think you're saving money by solving the problem yourself and you're actually creating a bigger problem. So, you know, this, this whole scenario where there are these you know different switch ports that do different things for different security zone resources that are uh, on a network this is just standard operating procedure i mean this is how it's been done ever you know since like 1997 at least and yet i continue to find examples where people just is like a foreign language to them they don't get it and as part of that conversation with the technician the technician was like Wait, you want me to plug in a second network cable between the switch and the core router? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we do. Really? Are you really, really sure? Isn't that going to create a loop in the network? Nope, it's not going to create a loop in the network. So I can always tell a lot about the lack of someone's adequate training and, and you know, complete lack of what I consider to be fundamental network knowledge when topics like that come up and you know organizations that do not seek to try to close that knowledge gap for their technicians are really doing a significant disservice to themselves as well as the employee 
uh, as well as their other staff, because an employee who is undereducated and who just is really lacking in fundamental knowledge is, well, you know, they're, frankly, they're a risk to the organization because nowadays every little tiny thing that someone in the IT department does has the potential to cause a misconfiguration that could be the thing that leads to the cybersecurity breach. And now let me take that idea one step further. So in the context that you'd gone through your cybersecurity insurance application period, you got your policy and everything that you filled out on that application, you think was accurate at the time that uh, you filled it out. Well, but then because you didn't have the right information security policies in place and the right training and the right technical controls, then your internal IT, you know, mid-year goes and makes a change to the configuration and ends up driving pretty significant security holes, you know, pretty significant holes through the security posture of the organization. Now, if that leads to an incident, a breach, some sort of a situation that would cause you to have to call the insurance company, then the insurance company is going to bring in their data forensic incident response team. Okay, they've got their own IR teams. Because the IR team works for the insurance company, they don't work for you, then the IR team's primary objective is to find out exactly what happened and then seek to identify culpability for what happened. So if the culpability for what happened is that you said on your application that a particular configuration was in place, that your cybersecurity posture was of a particular style, but then due to deficiencies in management, deficiencies in policies, in staffing educational levels, you know, just deficiencies in policies and procedures overall, uh, and in some cases, actually a lot of cases, uh, deficiencies in the discipline of the IT staff, then a configuration change was made, and that configuration change was done, most likely, in an expedited manner to try to solve a problem for an end user or a set of end users and that change was done without consulting the network security architect, you know, or the server security architect, or, you know, whoever the actual appropriate security architect is for that particular solution. And so as a result, the person who made that change doesn't understand the impact of what they did. And uh, they very well may have created a, a giant hole in your security posture. And as a result of that, been the actual causation for the breach. So this is drop dead serious stuff. Uh, just recently, there, it came out uh, publicly in the news that Travelers is currently in a lawsuit. Travelers Insurance is currently in a lawsuit with a an, a, an insured party, and the insured uh, encountered a. They had an incident. They were breached, and. Through the incident response and data forensic incident response team's investigation, they identified that the behavior and the configuration and the lack of cybersecurity posture that the insured had in their organization was the causation of the breach. And furthermore, the configure that, configuration that was in place was 
quite inconsistent with what they had stated that they had on their insurance application. So as a result, traveler's opinion is that that is not a covered incident because their perception is that insurance fraud has been committed. And uh, I don't know if you've looked at uh, cybersecurity insurance applications lately, but they all ask if you have had a past incident, uh, a claim, and you know when was that and what was the context of it and that sort of thing. Now, if, oh, and they also ask, have you ever been denied insurance? So if your organization is found to have been <clears throat> committing insurance fraud by lying on an application, then most likely you're going to be denied insurance going forward. And then the problem that comes after that is you can't afford to have an insurance policy or there's no company that will actually offer you a policy for any price. <laughs> you know, so all this stuff is really drop dead serious, right? And I'm, you know, I'm talking here about deficiencies in the understanding of networking related topics and how it has a direct and significant impact on not only the total cost of ownership of a technology solution to a business, but also how that has a direct impact in both directions, positive and negative, with regards to cybersecurity posture. Just earlier today, I received an email uh, inquiring where an uh, individual owns an IT service provider business, uh, asking me for assistance in modeling uh, methodologies, systems, and configurations for the purposes of high security and cybersecurity compliance. And you know, so fundamentally, if we can't get past the broken paradigm that says, you know, I don't like VLANs and I think I only need two VLANs. Well, you know, I, you just, you, you don't have enough VLANs. You can't create a security zone profile for each one of the unique things that you, that you needed. You know, on the other hand, when I'm filling out a cybersecurity insurance application and I need to say, uh, yeah, do you have backups totally isolated? Yes. Uh, do you have uh, domain controllers isolated? Yes. Uh, do you have any like legacy applications? And what have you done for isolation? Okay, well, gee, you know, if you don't have VLANs and you don't have the networking equipment that can support the expanse of VLANs that you need, then you don't have the flexibility and power to just be able to pop another VLAN onto your infrastructure and then configure that on a port and say, hey, device, bango, you are now on that VLAN with this security zone profile, you know, customized, you know, security posture, right? So <laughs> there is a world of difference between that need that your customer comes up with when you have the right infrastructure in place and you can, as the IT service provider, just simply say, Oh yeah, no problem. We can totally do that because we have the capacity to do it. 
The capacity means we purchased smartly, we've got the right infrastructure in place, adding another VLAN isn't gonna matter, adding another virtual machine really isn't gonna matter. You know, VMs are slightly a little bit more difficult because there, uh, you know, there is more uh, capacity needs in order to have more um, virtual machines. You know, and that's why it's really important for a business to not be picking apart. Um, you know, when they're looking at a server that they're going to have seven to nine years, they should not be going like, I don't know, can we reduce the price by like $3,000? By what? What are you giving up? And are you actually saving yourself any money? And 99% of the time, the answer is no, you're not saving your, yourself any money. So <clears throat> I like to sit down with the business decision makers and say, look, here's my design for your workloads. So these are your workloads. This is what we think your growth path is gonna be. Uh, we think that you're gonna need these additional workloads in the future. We know you're gonna have that server from seven to nine years. So we do not wanna be having a situation where you go back to the well later on and go like, oh, well, let's see, after the fact, we're gonna try and add more RAM to that server or more hard drive or whatever it is. Because as soon as you start doing that stuff, yeah, you know, the financial impact of doing that, if you can even get your hands on the parts, the financial impact of that is just, it's pretty outrageous. And I've seen this multiple times in the last three years where an organization just refused to build out their servers with enough disk space and RAM and proc initially. And and so then they suffer for like, you know, two years until they kind of get around to the end of the life cycle of that server. And in the meantime, they've had, you know, business initiatives that could not be fulfilled because they didn't have the capacity. Well, when we're talking about cybersecurity initiatives here, the cybersecurity initiatives are more adversely impactful to your organization than business opportunity you missed out on. Now, you may disagree with me. You may say, oh my gosh, no, profit and revenue is the, the most important thing. Well, I think that you should be focusing on profit and revenue, but not at the expense of ensuring that you can continue to have serviceable contracts with your customers because you have appropriate cybersecurity posture and you have an insurance policy uh, and you've met those requirements. And I think it's a much bigger fiduciary responsibility you have to your own customers, your employees, and then their families, let alone any other stakeholders you can think of, that you need to stay in business more than you need to grow the business. And if you do not pay enough attention to cybersecurity initiatives, like all the time, you're going to have a situation where you're not going to be able to stay in business anymore. If you don't do cybersecurity improvements on a regular basis, and when I mean regular, I'm talking at least quarterly. If you're not doing something at least quarterly, then those things that you need to do that are not yet done, they're gonna stack up and back up on you. And 
you got a real problem trying to come up with the manpower and the budget and the the business impact change time to change the to make those adjustments and it can take years it can absolutely just take years to clean up that mess so i just want to go through kind of a, a list of the vlans here that we typically use that you know that i've been using for years and years and years and i only see this list growing and um you know if you have something like um you know like an identity and access management server well that's got to be on its own vlan totally isolated if you have an rmm that's got to be on its own vlan totally isolated right so each one of these special types of assets that you have you're really creating a separate unique vlan for it so we got switch oobm server oobm switch management web management uh, phones surveillance cameras the corporate wired assets corporate wireless guest wireless the hvac equipment the electrical metering system chromebooks if you have them a uh, captive portal if you need it tier zero assets domain controllers app group one app group two deprecated apps printers uh, something like an IAM server, perhaps, maybe an RMM server. You know, there's a whole list, and I could add more to that list, obviously. So, hopefully, you can see very quickly where, from a physical connectivity perspective, you literally cannot make an argument that says that if I'm going to do network segmentation properly, I'm going to do it all with physical, physically separate equipment. You know, I'm going to have one physically separate switch just for the printers. And then I'm going to have a physically separate switch for the domain controllers. And wait, wait, furthermore, oh, I've got another good one for you here. <laughs> if your server resources are virtualized and you're only doing untagged communications, meaning you're not using VLANs, then you have to have a one-to-one -one relationship on the physical server, on the, on the virtual server's host. You have to have a one-to-one -one relationship between each virtual server and an ethernet interface on the host because you don't have any mechanism to be transmitting tag traffic. You know, so again, I mean, I'm just literally, as I thought about this more and more, this was a conversation I had with somebody. I, uh, I, I just, you know, I ended up laughing about it because there are just so many limitations in that, that paradigm that it's like, you know, wowzers talk about really, putting some, you know, handcuffs, blindfold and leg chains and, you know, 300 pounds and lead weights on yourself that you just can't get done what is otherwise ridiculously easy to accomplish. I mean, so if at any point in time you can actually utilize your technology to have more security, more resiliency, easier management with, you know, by just using uh, an improved configuration, well, my goodness, why wouldn't you? So that's what I have to say about uh, some networking 
deficiencies in, you know, the impacts of deficiencies in networking knowledge that some people have and how that adversely impacts either, you know, their external customers or their internal customers. And these are all things that uh, organizations should be seeking to verify are not problems in their company. <laughs>